This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, listeners, and salut, Babette. Well, it looks like things are moving for refugees and hopefully, hopefully for climate action too. In Wentworth, there were forums and meetings focused on those two issues. And we end up with an independent in Wentworth and an independent in Wagga at the same time. Now Victorians have a chance to make climate policy uppermost in the minds of those who want to represent us. And really, it is getting so urgent. Even though our government didn't care about the IPCC report very much, the Canadian government, they suspended Parliament after the IPCC report and they had an emergency debate. And I'm going to play you a little bit of it at the end to show you that in other countries, things are moving faster and people are taking it seriously. Australians have a big responsibility not only to us, to their domestic electorates and so on, but to the world, to the international um, community and to our region. So tonight's show takes us to Nauru and Kiribati in the Pacific, to Indonesia and many other spots in Southeast Asia where people are lifting themselves out of poverty while trying to have a lower impact on the climate. Meanwhile, our government has just said they will stop paying into the United Nations Green Climate Fund. Our guests are Anya Kangiza from the University of Wollongong, Dr. Rini Astuti from the University of Singapore, and Dr. Pichamon Yeofan Tong from the University of New South Wales at the Defence Force Academy in Canberra. I attended an ASEAN Forum in Sydney where the focus was on how to reconcile the economic growth needed in countries cut off from electricity and the internet and with the climate impact of growth. I heard about the Global Green Growth Institute in South Korea where they are working out how we can pay to keep the forests as carbon sinks rather than turning them into logs. It's about ecosystem services. We heard about the trillions being spent on China's Belt and Road Initiative. It could have massively damaging environmental impacts, though it is meant to be low carbon and sustainable. Meanwhile, Anote Tong, the former president of Kiribati, was here. Although his team regretted that he could not come on our show, I know he must have been finding many allies here. And I will play a small part of an interview with Catherine Rain from Radio New Zealand where he talks about getting the United Arab Emirates to build up artificial islands around Kiribati just to keep that culture alive. He was very gracious about the suggestion that Pacific nations have their hands out for cash. You remember our, um, Melissa Price may have made this comment, but I think we need to change our mindset and stop being so mean as that and think what we can do to repair some of the climate damage from our exported coal and gas. It's not a handout. We owe them. So let's start on Nauru. I'd like to now welcome Anya Kangiza. Hello, Anya. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sorry, I didn't have my headphones on. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. I'm glad that you could come on the show. Look, you said Indigenous Nauruans and refugees alike are on the front line of environmental change and your article in The Conversation last week was the first one I've read that really describes the place. Can you tell us what it's like on Nauru? Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, I think the fact that Nauru has been quite inaccessible for a long time means that nobody really talks about what it's like on Nauru, you know, what it, what it is actually like to be there. And I think that's probably one of the biggest gaps in knowledge that we have about Nauru in all of the different discourses that we have around the refugee and asylum seeker incarceration across the Pacific. Because the reality is, as I outlined in, in the um, piece that I wrote, the reality is that Nauru is in quite serious threat of climate change. Nauru is a small island state uh, in the Pacific, and unlike a lot of other islands in Micronesia, it doesn't have the low kind of level that a lot of other coral atolls have. It's actually got a bit of height. 
which means that a lot of people assume that Nauru is not as threat as any kind of sea inundation or anything like that. But that's really not true. Um, one of the things that I really noticed when I was there was that a lot of the coastal communities, because most people live on the coast, were saying that they had quite a few instances of um, coastal inundation that threatened their homes, that completely covered the road, you know, that made things inaccessible to them. It's also a place that's very hot, you know, it's in, it's in the tropical region. And to just kind of say, oh, yeah, it's hot there doesn't quite capture it. I mean, Nauru <laughs> is really, really hot. Yeah. Well, I, I picked up that word in your article, intolerable, and I've been thinking about Nauru for a long time. Like a lot of Australians, we're so worried and so desperately guilty about the fact that those people are, you know, just going mad there. But, you know, yep. people live there. And when you said that word intolerable and the school is not air conditioned and the children don't even want to go to school some days because it's just so hot to get there and then it's not air conditioned there. Well, you know, that's uh, it just brings it to life for me. And I wonder how the islanders are really experiencing climate change, apart from those um, moments of those king tides and so on. What other aspects of climate change are they noticing? Well, increasing temperatures is absolutely one. You know, um, people that I spoke to said that they could recall it being much cooler when they were children. And, you know, some people say, well, that's not the data science, that's just people's recollection. But the data actually does support what people are saying. The temperatures there are increasing. And, of course, with increasing temperatures and increasing temperatures in the water, you also see things like coral bleaching. You see a decrease in fish stocks. You see all kinds of effects in the marine environment. And considering that a lot of people in Nauru are subsistence fisher people, you know, they live off the food that they catch in and around Nauru, that's a pretty big deal. You know, that that is a really massive issue of food security there as well, which is also tied to climate change. Well, I'd like to know what are your responses then to the Australian government just last week stopping payments into the United Nations Climate Fund, which is meant to help poor nations respond to extreme weather and rising seas and presumably like their, their food sources diminishing? Look, I mean, I think the thing is, is that the Australian government has is so woefully out of touch with the things that people actually experience. You know, there is very little regard to how intensification of environmental events actually impact people's day-to-day lives. You know, you mentioned before about children not being able to go to school or people not being able to walk around outside and things like that. That is something that is quite detrimental to people's ability to function on a very basic day-to-day level. You know, access to water, access to food, these are very basic things that people need to be able to access in order to survive. And the Australian government's attitude to those kinds of things within Australia and across the Pacific, where it still plays a massive neocolonial role, is just so completely myopic and out of touch that I don't even have the words. To be honest. <laughs> yes, you said col- it's ongoing colonialism and in your article, and I thought, yes, most people wouldn't think that. Most people would think, oh, we're, we're giving them a lot of aid. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's really interesting. And a lot of people that I've spoken to have used some boomerang aid. No, I mean, I think Australia is... The Australian government and the Australian people for a lot of time are always going to put their own interests on other people's interests. But the things that somehow aid is an altruistic, you know, Anya, Anya, could you, Anya, could you just stop a minute? You're, we're losing you. Are you moving about? If you could stand still. And speak. Oh, no, I'm not moving about oh. at all. It's, oh, I well, your voice is. We've had yes, the reception. Just keep going. Just continue there. Yeah. No, I was just saying that, you know, I think that uh, an idea that aid is in some in some way an altruistic kind of handout is a very naive perception of Australia's role in the region. Yeah, well, it sounds as if Nauru actually needs that detention industry. You use the word detention industry. Well, that's chillingly true. And they apparently have to desalinate their water. They have to import most of their food. You mentioned that even like a little punnet of tomatoes would cost $20. Well, how are yeah. they thinking about their future? What, what are the Nauruans thinking will happen to them if, if the detention centre is closed down, which I'm sure most of our listeners are heartily wishing for and, and lobbying for? Um, Absolutely. What will they do without it? 
Absolutely. I mean, you have to remember that, you know, a lot of the Pacific Islanders, the indigenous communities across the Pacific, have been there for two, three thousand years. You know, it's, it's not as easy as to say, well, then people should just move. You know, there are relationships to land, relationships to land ownership that can't be replaced by just saying people should move. And, you know, phosphate mining is the primary industry in Nauru. And while primary mining is about to end, secondary mining is, I assume that it's going to So that may last for another 20 to 30 years. And after that, they will have no more exportable resources. So I'm not really sure. I mean, I know... People are talking about deep seabed mining, which is also a very contentious practice with a lot of environmental impacts, but there's not really much else that people can do economically. Right. Well, what is your Climate of Listening project about? Because, you know, you went there under the aegis of this thing called Climate of Listening. What's that all about? So my project is about environmental justice and self-determination across the Pacific. And I've spent the last year, this is just sort of the beginning of it, I've spent the last year in Fiji, Kiribati, the Marshall Islands, Nauru, and I'm about to head over to Papua New Guinea, um, talking to environmental justice activists, to artists, to academics, to writers, uh, to people working in NGOs and in some circumstances to people working in the government about issues around climate change and how the impacts of climate change are kind of seen within a long legacy of colonization and environmental injustice in the region. Yeah, well, I think one of the things you're interested in on your bio, it says something about silences, and I'm very interested in what you think about the silences on the subject of coal, oil and gas. I want to know where are the strong, strong statements in the IPCC report, for example, about banning future exploration. There's nothing like that. And I'd never see a conference advertised about how to wind down this industry. I go to plenty of conferences where they pay lip service to Paris Treaty and to the IPCC, but I feel a bit like an idiot. I'm the only one there asking how they can be drilling for more gas in the Northern Territory or coal in the Galilee Basin when we have been told it all has to stay in the ground. And I want how this silence, this taboo is actually maintained? Well, you know, I think that there is a lot of strategic factors, you know, and exactly the Can you hold still? Hold still, your voice is going again. I'm sorry. I'm not moving because I think oh. I'm getting a hold. Okay, keep going. very on the part of the Australian government and on the part of the government. And we see, we see in Australia's genocidal history how silence has been used to make sure that people don't know about certain things. You know, and I think looking at those things are the elephant in the room. I'm sorry, Anja, we can't really hear you. The voice is just breaking up. Could I just put, um, we just have a little community announcement and I'll ask Kurt to ring you again and try and get a better line. Sure. Something's wrong with this. Sure. Just hold, okay. your, hold your thought. <laughs> so, listeners, I've got on the line. You're listening to 3CR Radio. What a bit of music. Cyclone. Cast is pretty green. Shock on the Did you 
Ah, here we are. Thank you, Kurt. Fancy footwork there. So, uh, Anya, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. We were just talking about silences. You've thought about this. What's said and what's not said is what's not said is very loud to me. We're not saying ban coal and ban coal uh, oil and all that. So, just in a nutshell, why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, you know, silence is very strategic. So I, I would think that the reason why there is a silence around that is because it's not in their best interest to have it spoken about, you know. And I think that that is something that we need to be talking about, why that silence is there, you know, and why it is uncomfortable to break that silence as well. Because obviously the climatic, the climatic and environmental impacts of these kinds of industries is devastating. And we know that it's devastating. It's not speculation, we know that it is devastating to the environment. Well, that's right. Just to finish, would you like to tell listeners about your sound art and where they can hear it? Do you do podcasts or what do you do? <laughs> yes, normally I do, but at the moment I'm quite busy travelling around. Um, but I work with the material that I have in artistic ways as well as a political geographer. Um, and people can find that on my website, which is just anyakangiza.org, I think. Oh, God, I'm oh. terrible at promotion. dot <laughs> <laughs> com. You can send us a little link and I'll put it on with the podcast of our show. But I'd be most interested to play anything you have about, you know, these interviews you're doing. I don't know if you record them, but when you go around, we'd probably do, love yeah. to because we can't travel, you know, and if, if you would be... Um, Racking up the carbon miles there. Please make it worth our while by having a little bit on our on our show. So thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. So that was thank a, you. That, Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. That was Anya Kangiza, the Vice Chancellor's Research Fellow at University of Wollongong. And now, listeners, we're just going to have a little bit of Ano Tetong, the former president of. Kiribati, and he's talking on Radio New Zealand about the big plans he has for Kiribati. They're not going to drown, they're going to build up their islands. A focus on adaptation because adaptation has got to be the way forward for us. Because if we cannot, cannot adapt to what is happening, then we have no choice but to relocate. We cannot just wish that it would not happen. We cannot ask God to stop it because He's not there. And so. You know, we've got to be brutally pragmatic about this. What are the adaptation options then? I, I know when you, when you were um, directing your message at that conference, at conference, it was give us a proposition that will guarantee our people will remain above the water. Conversely, you're also talking about what the science is telling you. So what is technologically possible? What are you calling on these bigger nations to support you to do? Well, help us lift our people above the rising seas. Help us lift our people above the intensifying storms so that next time there is a bit of a storm, our people can, can feel a sense of security that the storm can intensify as much as possible, but it will not wipe away their islands. I, I, I don't think the technology is one that has, that's got to be reinvented. It's already there. The, uh, in, what I did, in fact, was to commission a study with the United Arab Emirates uh, using the engineers, the Dutch engineers who build their islands in Dubai. And they did come, they did conduct a study, quite a detailed study. I, I also um, invited the Koreans, who had done a bit of that as well, to do a study to, to determine how we might approach this. Uh, there is no question in my mind that it's technologically possible. It's just a question of putting a credible design, uh, to formulate a plan for it, and of course, begin to mobilize the resources for it. And so it's not an impossible uh, task. It's just uh, enormous in terms of the scales that we normally operate at. It's enormous for our, but it, then again, what option do we have? And so we've got to think in very different terms. And if those don't work, then let's consider. And I was prepared to go as far as think about floating islands. And because I'm criticized for coming up with these wild ideas, bought, I bought uh, land in Fiji. But I think 
all I've been waiting for is somebody to come forward and say, no, your ideas are crazy, but these are better ideas. But nobody has been coming forward. And so that's been the challenge that I've been throwing at the international community, trying to do it ourselves, trying to do come up with these wild ideas and the expectation that somebody would rise to the challenge and say, oh, you're struggling. Here we are. Can we help you do it? You know, we bought land simply as part of a statement to tell the international community that there is no, nothing coming forward. And I keep, I keep challenging even to today. You know, we, I was in London for the, um, uh, as on the fringes of the, uh, the, the Commonwealth Heads of Government, and there was a climate meeting. And it's about finding concrete, credible solutions that would deliver our people within the next um, million, hundred, uh, century and so on, so that our, my grandchildren and everybody else's grandchildren can be assured, and I can be assured that my grandchildren would not be running around looking for where to go. We've got one of the largest fish resources anywhere in the world, tuna, in that part of the world. And it's a, for, for Kiribati alone, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. But we only get less than 10% of the value on the side of the wharf, not in the retail shops. And so what I've been arguing for has been the restructure of that industry so that we can get a more, a fairer rate of return. So, and if we could do that, $600 million is not a lot of money, especially in terms of the sacrifice and the loss that we would sustain. This is James Henry here, and you're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing, and this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. Dr. Rini Astuti with us. She's from the National University of Singapore, but originally she comes from Indonesia, so she knows a lot about that. And um, I want to ask her about peatland and the things that have changed as the world has become more aware of the uh, danger to the environment of that haze, smoke haze that comes every year from the burning off of the peatland. So um, can you start off by telling us what has changed in the last couple of years in governing that? All right, thank you. Well, uh, uh, first, I want to tell uh, the listeners that Indonesia has 24 million hectares of peatland, and I think that's the biggest uh, tropical peatland in the world. Uh, unfortunately, uh, more than half already converted to uh, agricultural plantations. Um, since, well, post the 2015 forest fires, uh, the government under Jokowi, uh, Jokowi Dodo's administration uh, has pledged to uh, restore 2 million hectares of peatland that was burned yes. in 2015. Uh, in 2016, uh, the government established peatland restoration agency that is mandated then to uh, lead and coordinate the restoration process. Perhaps you can explain peatland, it's like swampy land, isn't oh, it? Yeah. And it's very uh, full of carbon mm. and uh, it's being converted to make way for plantations and for farming. But um, how do you restore it? Mm. Right, okay. So, uh, well, peatland 
naturally when it's not being disturbed it's a waterlogged uh, soil and when uh, people start to convert it for agricultural plantation they have to drain this uh, waterlogged soil uh, and they do that by constructing canals and when peat is dry it's becoming prone to fire yes. yeah and uh, sorry, what's the question yeah. again? Um, it just how how would they restore it? All right. So, well, the government's uh, focusing on three strategies. First is to um, uh, rewet the area that's already dry yes. by blocking canals yes. and uh, by. Um, for example, uh, asking the plantation to stop their activities uh, and uh, backfilling the canals with soil. Uh, second strategy is by revegetation, that is to replant the area. Because when peatland is dry, uh, nothing can live on that soil. Uh, the government then plan to revegetate uh, these two million hectares of uh, degraded peatland. And the third strategy, which is I think the most important, is by uh, focusing on revitalizing of the livelihood of the communities who depend on peatland yeah. by asking them and then facilitating them to convert from, uh, well, non-sustainable uh, farming technologies yeah. to uh, technology that is more sustainable without uh, slash and burn. Well, that's very fascinating because people have told me, well, that's traditional to slash and burn. Mm. But previously, um, I don't know how long it's been traditional, like how many mm. centuries or... I mean, surely these alternatives, they're, they're not new alternatives. Are they going back to more traditional farming? What are they replanting on that uh, re-wetted land? Mm. Okay, so, uh, well, uh, some of the commodities, uh, they can only live on dried peatland. For example, palm oil, which is the boom crop that, yes. you know, um, millions of smallholders in Indonesia are depending on. Yes. But now the government also try, and also the NGO and donors agency also mm -hmm. try to introduce another commodities yes. that are also commercial, mm -hmm. such as coffee. Uh, and then sago uh, and develop not only the um, and develop the market that will make it possible for the farmers to also get the same benefit as when they uh, plant palm oil okay. however it's a very long process and <laughs> is the long process persuading the people that there is a market for those other products or is the slow process blocking off those irrigation channels and allowing the land to become wet again what's the, I mean it sounds like that would be simple to re-wet the land that sounds like simple but is it the people is the problem yeah well uh peatland in indonesia is not you know uh, an empty land no. people already live there and they depend on that land yeah. for their livelihood so uh re-wetting the area i mean it's very technical it's simple but no. dealing with the people is you know the yeah. most difficult so and there's big, I imagine there's big invested interests, like big uh, production companies who are uh, paying this. But we shouldn't be blaming the small farmers. I think it's more the big uh, international companies that are making that so, uh, making it so profitable. Um, but the main thing I'm interested in is climate change and the climate potential of re-wetting that land or not burning it. So that, you know, did you have any idea or have you any numbers about what the climate impact of the burning is like at the, in 2015 because it was the Paris climate conference people were talking about it and they said one day of this burning is equal to the industrial emissions of the United States which is a very big number so do you have some idea uh, is the Indonesian government quantifying it uh the World Bank in Indonesia has published a study on the impact of forest fires. Uh, I think the numbers of the greenhouse gas emissions from the burning was around 
1,700 something metric ton equivalent of yes. carbon emission, yeah. and that's double the emissions of uh, Indonesia from the previous year. Oh, yeah, of the whole of Indonesia. Yes, yes. yes. So it's in your interest in the global community to get that emissions down. So is rewetting the main strategy? Well, uh, it's not only rewetting. Um, the tree strategy has to be a very comprehensive uh, approach that not only the government but also the private sector take um, uh, the transition toward a good commodity or good Uh, sustainable uh, pitland management has to be done uh, by the private sector as well because uh, currently more than 11 million hectares of land in Indonesia are being uh, managed by large-scale concessions. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so what about the small farmers? In Australia we've had trouble with Um, rewarding people for leaving trees in the ground. For example, farmers, you know, if they want to clear the land, they can. But really, we want to give them an incentive to keep the trees in the ground because it's good for the whole um, ecosystem, but it's also good for carbon sequestration. Are you rewarding farmers who keep, say, mangrove forests, like on a coastal area, intact, or trees and bushes intact? Are you rewarding people with carbon, like for carbon farming? Mm. Well, the initiative that uh, the government and donors agency and also uh, NGOs took several years ago was REDD. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, oh, yes. uh, this yes. initiative has been like, well, maybe not stopped, but the the progress has been slow uh, to reward farmers uh, in you know protecting uh, carbon stocks uh, by not burning for example or by not uh, cutting the, the forest uh, the current regime um, offering like it's called a social forestry program uh, which is uh, giving access to the community uh, for the management of the forest which the government wants to transit like uh, the management of forest from large scale concession to the farmer to, to transition yes yeah, make, yeah. A transition. make a transition um, and hoping that that will give them a situation with an improved livelihood yeah well i think it's a work in progress isn't it i heard about the red scheme and it was disappointing but I, maybe i haven't asked you all the right questions can you tell me now you're going to give a talk at the moment to this conference what should we know you know as your near neighbor here what should we know about the efforts you are making to um, curb the climate impact of the uh, peatlands mm. well uh The government uh, has a very strict policy. Uh, enforcing that policy in Indonesia is another story. But we have started with uh, something good, which uh, the government announced uh, last year that they will stop uh, concessions from operating in protected area. So this 24 million hectares of peatland in Indonesia now is divided into two protection and uh, utilization areas. Yes. For the 12, uh, 12 million hectares of protection area, it there will be moratorium and it's already started. Just a uh, few weeks ago, moratorium to stop issuance of new permit for uh, large-scale concessions to yes. work on this peatland. And what are the penalties for burning? I know you already had the laws, even in 2015 you mm -hmm. had the laws, mm -hmm. but the illegal burnings seem to go on. Mm. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, That's uh, well for large scale concession. It's quite easy to uh, well to take them to court because yes. uh, we know exactly where their concessions are. Although some concessions are overlapping with each other, but um, the process of uh, investigating where originally the fires from and oh, yeah. who did it mm -hmm. in large scale concession. That's uh, maybe. 
easier that rather than in the settlement area or in the agricultural areas that are you know uh, managed by communities. Yeah. <laughs> But would you say emissions are going down since say 2015? Have the emissions from Indonesia from this sector gone down? Well. Uh, We are quite fortunate to be blessed with quite wet, uh, you know, oh, <laughs> season. <laughs> yes, yeah. in the last two years since uh, 2015. Yes. So numbers of hotspots have been uh, very decreasing compared yeah. to 2015, and uh, the involvement of well, the police and the military are quite effective in yeah. you know reducing numbers of hotspots. Yeah. However. Uh, Criminalization also happen here with you know small scale farmers yes. because sometimes they don't have options. Yes, and yes, they, they, it shouldn't be just focused on them. Just lastly, you're at the University of Singapore. What's the role of research, information, science, you know, uh, information feeding into governments? Because climate change is such a big problem. Everyone's everyone waits for the next one to move. But being ahead of the game with good scientific backing is important. Is that what your role is? Uh, well, I think so. <laughs> well, we try to raise awareness in Singapore, especially that uh, transboundary haze is not only about forests being burned in Indonesia, but also about the complexities of the whole problem. Uh, forest is a place for communities uh, to get their livelihoods from, and it's not a straightforward process to stop the burning mm -hmm. that uh, Singapore as for example Singapore as a country also has a responsibility to help by for example overseeing the bank operations in finance in financing you know uh, dirty corporations for example so policies has to be enforced on that yes. Uh, you know, uh, initiative. Yeah. I'm always for following the money. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So we've just been talking to Dr. Rini Astuti from University of Singapore, uh, who's an expert on peatland restoration. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Free CR, 8:55 a.m. The voice of the community. <laughs> Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. And thank you, Kurt. I forgot to introduce Kurt. He's here with me in the panel, on the panel. Our next guest is Dr. Pichemon Yeofantung. She leads the Responsible Business Lab and is at the De Department of International Relations and Development at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. It's um, ADFA. She has done extensive fieldwork in China and Southeast Asia and has a human rights focus, which is why I was very interested in what she had to say at the ASEAN Forum. So welcome, Pachamon. How are you today? Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to hear you, and I'm, I'm wanting you to share your knowledge with the audience because you have done so much in your life, I think, so far, been to so many places and been influential in different places. So just start with what tensions do you see between the need to cut emissions created um, in the overdeveloped world and the developing countries who still need to make emissions but they want to cut them down. Where, how is, are these tensions being resolved? Well, it's, it's a perennial tension um, and it's a question that countries like China, of course, are still asking. Why must we cut our carbon emissions when really, um, if you look at historic carbon emissions, it's all from the West, or at least they would say so. But if we think in terms of a common common humanity and if we think in terms of a common interest to ensure that we do not subject the future generations to um, irrevocable environmental degradation, then it is, it is something that we can't just simply say it's the responsibility of Western developed countries or the responsibility of, of developing countries elsewhere in the world. Um, at the end of the day, it's really a common one. And I think now we are seeing that narrative coming through much more strongly. Um, we are now seeing not just governments, but also non-state actors, civil society, of course, but even multinational um, corporations starting to um, do more work in this area to ensure that we have a sustainable future ahead of us. What are some examples of that? 
Well, when we think of carbon, when we think of climate change, we think of cutting carbon emissions. But in reality, it's also more than that. Um, think of this. I'll give you one example. Um, studies have all already demonstrated how community-owned land, so land owned by indigenous communities, for instance, tend to sequester more carbon. Um, they tend to also demonstrate lower levels of deforestation, and as a result, they can support. Um, more people um, than those that are public or privately owned um, forests, that is. Um, and if you think in the longer term, what this means is that if you are able to support indigenous rights, um, especially communal ownership of land, um, this can, of course, have a much more longer term effect on, on, on climate change and mitigating the effects of climate change. So what we're seeing, for instance, in the area of, of companies, um, there are now some companies that are taking the initiative to dialogue with indigenous um, communities and to ensure that they are being heard, um, that their rights are being respected, and in so doing to lobby government within Southeast Asia um, to to allow for the um, for the legis- uh, for the uh, issuance of land titles for these indigenous communities. Right. Well, can you tell us about uh, projects that are needed for the economy but which have a terrible climate impact being uh, tailored, um, tapered off? For example, I think in the Aring Valley in Cambodia you had some experience. Uh, yes, that's right. I mean, when we, again, when we think about the question of climate change, immediately people will say, well, one solution is for us to resort to the use of renewable energy. Um, and of course, one of the most popular renewable energy sources these days is water. Um, and as a result, we're seeing a, a boom in the development of hydropower across the developing world, especially in Asia, so in China and in various parts of, of Southeast Asia as well as South Asia. The problem, though, is that when we think about it, hydropower may well seem like a cleaner, um, more environmentally friendly source of energy. And yet, in actual fact, the social and environmental ramifications beyond um, carbon um, is, are actually quite severe. Um, so in, in Cambodia, for instance, I've worked um, on the issue of the Arang Dam, which has since been suspended. Um, however, when it was considered by the Cambodian government, it's a relatively small hydropower dam. It wasn't expected to generate a lot of electricity. However, the, the repercussions that the dam would have in Arang Valley, which is one of the last pristine remaining forests in Cambodia, would have been so severe. It would have uh, definitely negatively impacted biodiversity in the area. Um, it would have also meant that um, that last pristine forest would have been cut down to make way for the dam. Um, and this is not even to mention the implications for local communities, indigenous communities, um, that see that uh, that see the valley as not only as a source of economic income but also um, cultural identity. Yeah, well, every year I think I read about uh, forest defenders or people standing up against. Uh, damaging dam projects, huge ones, are actually murdered. And I wanted to know what can business leaders do who are planning those projects to protect the human rights of people in the way of their big profits? I mean, there has to be a balance, and you've got a lot of human rights focus in your work. Yes, no, I mean, uh, it was last year, I think, that um, some very startling statistics were released by Global Witness about how almost four environmental defenders are killed each week. Um, and this is not limited to uh, activists who are fighting against large-scale hydropower dams, but it also involves activists fighting against mining operations, um, against um, forest uh, deforestation, sorry, and as well as against things like sand dredging and, and the like. Um, so it's a vast gamut of, of environmental issues that these activists have mobilized against. But um, as a result, they are facing very real um, physical insecurity, um, not only for themselves, but also for their families. Um, and so it may well, if we think of, of those statistics, if we think of, of the situation on the ground, it may, may well seem very bleak. Um, the question I often get asked is, you know, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Can we actually reasonably expect companies to behave more responsibly for governments, um, especially in authoritarian countries in the region, to behave more responsibly in a way that respects the rights of local communities? Um, and the answer is, is, of course, very complex. Um, it is not a simple white, black or white answer. Um, but I can say that we are seeing 
some incremental improvements over time. So as I mentioned, um, there, are, there are companies involved um, in the mining sector and even companies from China that are normally seen as being, you know, generally quite irresponsible in their environmental and social practices that are starting to learn that, well, in actual fact, by being socially and environmentally irresponsible, there are very real um, impacts on their, their profit margins as well. Um, so if they want to improve the, the profitability of their operations, they, they do have to take into very serious consideration um, things like due diligence and mm-hmm. engaging with local stakeholders. Um, and so we are gradually seeing that change in attitude, but also in policy among some of these multinational corporation. Right. Well, I'm always looking for sort of green shoots or trends, positive trends, and I noted that the new Malaysian primary industries minister called Teresa Locke has recently said that the government of Malaysia will not allow any expansion of their palm oil plantations and they are committed to restoring 50% of forest cover. I wonder, what other good signs do you see in this region? Would you mind repeating what well, type like, of good, what, sorry? what good signs do you see of, for example, retaining a forest as a carbon sink, you know, seeing that there is some eco-service in it and uh, obligation to keep it or, I don't know, uh, forest is the main one, I think, but there'd be plenty of other sure. aspects that are positive, you know, trends that are positive. Malaysia's had a change of government that's positive in itself, but um, what other trends do you see like that? Sure. I think I will preface my answer by saying this first, which is that governments in the region tend to be responsive when there is a critical mass of activism against a certain project or a suite of projects. Um, So Malaysia is not alone in that regard. You also see even the Philippine government under Duterte coming out and saying that they will stop trying to put a ban on uh, future and current mining operations within the country. And similarly in Thailand, there's been talk about um, suspending this, this one uh, mining operation from Australia um, that is believed to have caused um, environmental pollution in the surrounding areas of the operation. So it, it goes to show that governments in the region are actually quite responsive um, once you reach a certain level of critical mass from local communities and um, civil society more generally. However, the issue is, has always been and will continue to be, in my opinion, um, the issue of enforcement. Um, so whilst it's extremely promising for Malaysia to say that they will stop oil palm expansion, maintain forest cover, um, the question is to what extent will this be implemented in reality? To what extent um, will this actually become you know, something that, that companies adhere to? Um, and when I, I talk about companies, a lot of the problem is, is not just the big firms, it's actually the smaller ones that we don't hear about too often. Um, so as to give you an example, I said before, China is often seen as, as a very negative actor within the region. Um, and a lot of attention is spotlighted um, on the uh, impacts of Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises that are very large and very well-funded. But in actual fact, a lot of the damage that's being done to the environment in Southeast Asia at the moment, a lot of it is actually the result of smaller Chinese private companies um, that we don't really hear much about and where we don't get a lot of information on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is, there are many promising developments across the region. And I think we are seeing a much more emboldened civil society um, in the Asia-Pacific these days, and many new networks are forming. Um, I'm recently become involved in a new environmental defenders network um, that started up just a few months ago. Um, but always, as I said, the question is, you know, to what extent can we ensure that the solutions or the responses of these governments are actually sustainable in the longer term? And how can civil society continue to maintain the pressure so that governments don't backtrack on their promises? Mm-hmm. And I think you said at the conference too that they look to us, they look to countries like Australia to help them with the governance and, and putting in place these sort of implementation plans. You know. But my last question is, how do you view China's big investments in Southeast Asia? A lot of people are starting to now panic because they see the bigness of it, like everything from China is so big, but they're spending trillions apparently and their Belt and Road Initiative, which has been around for a while, we've been hearing about it, but now it's starting to be become a reality that um, they claim it'll be low carbon and promote sustainable development but I can't see how that could possibly be true um, 
because uh, they're also investing in coal and gas in the in outside China. So, um, how do you view this, and how can we view it without panicking? Sure. I mean, that is that is the question on everyone's mind at this point. Um, you don't have to work on China to be thinking about these issues and to be wondering what the future holds. Um, and I know that people within China are equally concerned about their future as well. Um, if you've been to the country, you'll know that Chinese people themselves aren't terribly happy with the quality of the air over there,、um, and that has become a huge legitimacy problem for the Chinese government in recent years.、Um, having said that, there have been plenty of accusations that the Chinese government or Chinese companies have been trying to transfer pollution to other countries, or as some would say, export pollution to other countries.、Um, and certainly, the fact that China is very much power hungry, energy hungry,、um, it means that we've Seen a, a swell in the number of, for example, hydropower projects being constructed across Southeast Asia,、um, and again, this only further、um, reinforces the negative reputation that Chinese companies have, but also that the Chinese government has earned for itself as well. I think the important thing for us to remember, though, is that China is not a monolithic actor,、um, and when we say China, we actually have to deconstruct it. And, and to understand that there are many different interests at play, many different agencies at play, but also many different actors at play. And for that reason, it is actually quite a challenge for the Chinese government itself to know what is happening at any one time involving Chinese firms overseas.、Um, for that reason, we've seen a spate of, of legis—well, not so much legislation because they're not legally binding—but we have been seeing a spate of, of responsibility. Responsible policy guidelines being issued by the central government、um, in an attempt to monitor and regulate the behavior of Chinese companies overseas, not just state-owned enterprises, but also private companies, especially those operating within the natural resource and energy sectors.、Um, and as a result, if you look at the policy documents being issued and published、uh, by the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, as well as the various, you know, policy um, commitments um, being made by Chinese、uh, leaders in regard to the、uh, One Belt One Road Initiative or the Belt and Road Initiative,、um, a lot of it contains the word green and sustainable,、yes. and, and you know,、um, the promise that China will become a leader、um, in not only financing green energy、um, sources, alternatives. Um, but also in ensuring that its investment overseas, whether in an infrastructure or energy, will not result in negative、um, repercussions in host countries. I mean, it's still very early days. In one sense,、um, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank has only been in operation for not a long time. Yeah.、Um, a lot of the policy documents.、Um, I was involved in consulting on the grievance mechanism, and it, it's only been just about a year when they've actually really finalised many of their their policy guidelines、um, oh. and framework for action. Uh, I'll have、so、to cut you there, Pichum. And I feel like I've discovered a new library book talking to you. There's a lot of stuff you've told me that I've never heard before, and I hope our listeners、right. enjoyed it. And I hope we can invite you again sure, next、right. year to tap into your、uh, great, great store of experience and knowledge. So thank you very much. That was most interesting.、Um, we'll we'll call you again next year. Thank you very much. Right. Well, thank you. Thank All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was uh, um, Dr. Pichamon Yeofantung. She's actually very young, and she knows so much. And I met her at the ASEAN conference. She she works in Canberra at the University of New South Wales, ADFA. So now we're going to quickly have the Canadian emergency debate. They suspended their parliament listeners when they got the IPCC report, and they said we have to have a response for this. So business as usual was suspended, and all the senators were got up and. Spoke and this one is this person is called Elizabeth May and she's from British Columbia and she spoke. Here's what she said. I want to begin by quoting some words, Mr. Speaker. Quote: Humanity is conducting an unintended, uncontrolled, globally pervasive experiment whose ultimate consequences could be second only to global nuclear war. Close quote. Those words, Mr. Speaker, were the opening sentence of the consensus scientific report from the Toronto conference in June 1988, when this government, this country, was in the lead on climate change, working with the World Meteorological Organization, the United Nations Environment Program. The warnings from science were clear then; they remain crystal clear now. 
That was in 1988. I've had a ringside seat, Mr. Speaker, to decades within which we could have arrested climate change before our glaciers were melting, before we were losing the Arctic, before our forests were on fire, before we saw drought and climate refugees and tornadoes in Ottawa. We had a chance in the 1990s and we blew it. We had a chance in the first decade of this century and we Every time there's been a warning from scientists, the alarm bell rings and society hits the snooze button. I'm increasingly drawn to the conclusion that our biggest problem is the short-term mindset that preoccupies political parties, not just in Canada but around the world. Where's the bravery? Where's the courage? There are all those people surrounding every politician saying, well, you can't win an election telling the public the truth. You can't tell people that they're going to have to stop using an internal combustion engine, leave fossil fuels on the ground. Do you want to tell them that? Well, that's not going to be politically popular. So we have one chance, one chance only, within which all the nations on Earth agree that we meant what we said in Paris. We must hold global average temperature increase to no more than 1.5 degrees. And in this, the IPCC special report contains good news. Because it says you can do it. It says there are no physical, geological, geochemical, there are no conditions of planetary existence, technical or economic, that will prevent us from achieving the goal of protecting our children's future. Not future generations in the hypothetical. The children here, now, the grandchildren I tuck into bed at night, those children not hypothetical children. All of us know those children. They are our children. We have one chance to ensure that in their natural lifespans they enjoy a hospitable biosphere that has sustained humanity since we first got up and walked on two legs. And we need to say to Canadians, we've got hope. Do not despair. Do not think it's too late. Don't turn away from the IPCC reports. Don't be afraid because we can't breathe in British Columbia in the summer from forest fires. Don't give up. We rally. We marshal. Every small town, every big city, every Canadian group, rotary clubs, church groups, and we tell those naysayers who think that climate change is about a cash grab that they are in the way of our future and they must get out of the way. But we also, Sally, must say to our own Minister of Environment, it's not true that we can't change our target for five years. The Paris Agreement says clearly any country can replace its own target any time. And the IPCC report has said to us as a country that our target is approximately 50% too little. We need to do twice as much. I know that's hard, but to save the lives of our children, what wouldn't we do? Why won't we rally round the call that we go to COP24 and say, we're not going to wait five years. It's an unthinkable thing what the minister said to us. She said, we're going to wait till 2023. Read between the lines. That's what she just said. We must go to the next climate negotiation as leaders in the world with the target the scientists have told us we must have, and then we must stand up and challenge the others. Where's your target? Where's your goal? Because we are not prepared to tell our children we are a failed species. We are not going to do that because we are responsible human beings. We are Canadian parliamentarians, and we can, together, achieve the pathway that's been put before us by the world's scientists. Time is not on our side. History may not be on our side, but by God, we better be on our own side. We better grab this chance and make it real. Well, I've got five seconds to tell you everything. Thank you to everyone who was on this show and thank you to the team. Roger, Kurt and me, we are a fantastic team. And many thanks to all of you who participated. Look, tomorrow night, Tuesday, please take action. Go down to the Hawthorne Arts Centre by 6.30. They're having a fantastic lineup of speakers. It's 360 Burke Road on the corner of Glenferry Road. I'm sure there's a tram going down there. It will be a thrilling meeting with climate historian Joel Gurgis, business expert Oliver Yates, and lawyer Sarah Barker. If you want to go, they, they still have three seats, it's, but, but I would register now if you, if you want to go tomorrow night, Hawthorne 
Hawthorne Arts Centre, 6.30. Go down to Eventbrite on your computer and type in Climate Change, Why Should I Care? It starts at 7 o'clock and thank you to Lighter Footprints for putting it on. Our Friday radio host Michael has been heavily involved. This show has been brought to you by Beyond Zero Emissions, the Climate Solutions Think Tank. Contact us with ideas at radioteam at bze.org.au. Good night. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au.